Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. Welcome back, everyone, to the PA, the FI Way podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and I am absolutely so excited for today's episode. We have a very special guest, and her name is Mira. Mira, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. So, Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. So, Mira, you are a pre-PA, and you're going to be starting PA school later this year in the fall. So I really think that your story is going to be really unique and really valuable to many of the listeners today. Do you mind introducing yourself to the listeners? Sure. So my name is Mira. Like Kat said, I'm really blessed. I've been accepted to not one but two PA programs. I'm also currently waitlisted at three PA programs, and then I was waitlisted at two previously, and I didn't get off those waitlists, but I am a first cycle applicant. So I'm sure that you guys know that like the application, some people, they get waitlisted and rejected earlier than others, and different schools have different timelines, etc. But my background, I became an EMT when I was 18, so like the second I could, nice. <laughs> and to get my feet wet. And I've also worked as a home health aide, and I, the volunteer work I did was both like EMS stuff and non-medical volunteer work, because I just love volunteering. And then I also did like a bit of research in a neuropsych lab. I'm also a disability advocate. So I did like disability studies minors and I did a bioethics minor and my major was psychology. And yeah, now I'm applying to PA school and I also really, really like public health. So I worked on the New York City uh, mayor's transition team with our deputy health commissioner working in public health policy. And I recently completed an opioid crisis fellowship where I led like um, circles and conversations in my community that were grounded uh, in like more ethical based practices and harm reduction. Because uh, I'm also the child of an alcoholic and I really speak out about that a lot. Mm. And I've also taught CPR. So yeah. Wow. And I'm 22. So like I am on the younger side. So I just want to say like shout out to the young folks applying to PA school. There's nothing wrong with doing it at any age. Age is just a number. Um, Maturity can base, you know, it's not based on age. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that background, Mira. I was also 22 when I started PA school, so that's pretty great. And it certainly sounds like you are quite the well-rounded applicant because you have done so many things already at such a young age. So that's really great. Very cool. Thank you. I say quality over quantity. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And then what have you enjoyed the most about your various roles that you've had in the medical field so far? Okay, so a couple of things that I really liked that I found is that I really like advocacy work. So like patient advocacy, but also disability advocacy work. And I really like the intersectionality between disability advocacy and medical work. So for example, um, in my disability studies minor, we did like a project where we literally like were measuring things around pharmacies and talking about like, what's up with like med compliance and patients and wheelchairs and you know, of course, like you have capsule pharmacy, but a lot of those times it's like even technology on the phone isn't accessible. Like even dating apps aren't accessible to disabled people. So it's really, really hard. And I do want to note that I might use disabled people's here 
But the thing is that I'm using identity first language. So that's a personal choice. Some people with disabilities prefer to go with person first language saying I am a person with a disability. Other people will say I am a disabled person. So like in the autism community, it's really common that people feel like you can't separate the autism from the person. So they refer to themselves as an autistic individual. But some people feel like they want to be separated from their condition, just like, you know, a person who is obese as opposed to an obese individual. Um, it's just a personal choice. I personally go by like neurodivergent individuals because like I feel like my neurodiversity is just a part of who I am and I'm not going to separate it. And that's totally cool. But yeah, I really just like patient advocacy work and sort of finding out the why behind behaviors as opposed to just trying to be judgmental. Um, and that's something that's like influenced both clinically and on a clinically like my passions. Awesome. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the clarification that you had and what you chose as an individual to refer to and things like that. So thank you for that. And Mira, what made you decide to become a PA versus perhaps another role in the healthcare industry? Sure. So I started off uh, college as a chemistry major, actually, like pre-med. Sure. Um, but that like definitely wasn't for me. So like a couple of things that I really liked about being a PA, which I first found out about through like a girl in my EMS squad in college. So like if you go to a college that has like an EMT program, uh, mine actually covered the cost of it. Take advantage of it. So like that's a great way to get patient care experience. It's literally free. Um, the only thing I had to pay for was like my textbook. It was awesome. Nice. Very cool. I just cool. loved EMT school. But yeah, I met people there um, and found out what a PA was. And I feel like the lateral mobility of the PA profession, although like this isn't to say that like just because you become a PA, has you have to work in a lot of different specialties. It's more just like the flexibility is there for you if you want it, if you want to take advantage of that. Exactly. And that's okay if you don't as well because there are CAQs, which are certifications of advanced qualifications. So you can get those in psych. You can get those in hospice and palliative medicine. But I felt like my ADHD brain, I'm constantly getting like hyper-focused on different specialties. And my interests are always changing, even while I was doing my patient care. And so I always say that like I chose PA because I chose a career where I'm never going to be forced to make like um, an indefinite decision of like I have to be in this thing for the rest of my life and of course like with MD or DO you can switch like my father did a pediatric residency and then did an anesthesia residency but do I really want to put myself through that when I have like a lot of interest outside of work and like I would really like to have time to like start a family and like I'm really into like adoption I would love to like adopt domestically and like just do a lot of things outside of work. Cool. So I felt like PA was for me. And I also just want to know, I also do want to get a doctor eventually, but I would love to do like a Juris doctorate perhaps and go to law school and work a little bit like on the side and like mid-mal nice, uh, nice. in addition to working as a PA. But I just know that like with PA, you're not limiting yourself. Like you can still work as a PA for a while and do like expert witness work. So you don't even have to get a law degree technically to do that. Awesome. Those all sound like great, wonderful and individualized reasons for you of why you chose to become a PA. And I think you hit the nail on the head on so many of those aspects of why the PA profession is wonderful. Certainly, there are so many amazing careers in the healthcare industry. So obviously, we're both incredibly biased because we chose the PA profession. But it all is about teamwork. And we appreciate all of our colleagues, no matter the area of medicine that they practice in. But I definitely appreciate the lateral mobility as well. I think that those in medicine who have decided that they want to work in one specialty forever and ever, amen, bless them for doing that because I just don't know that about myself. Like, I can't believe that they they know that about themselves and can see themselves working in an area of medicine for 20, perhaps 30 or even 40 years. Whereas right now, I am in a specialty. But perhaps, you know, in a whole nother 
life that I have with kids in the future, another specialty might be more appealing at that time. And I just don't know that personally about myself. So I really love that aspect about the PA profession as well. But you still have the ability to dig in. Like you can do, you know, advanced practice provider fellowships after graduation and residencies. Or just, you know, you can work in multiple specialties at a time. So I feel like a lot of people with ADHD are going to go into the PA profession because we have so many interests and like PAs are like, come pursue them all. I'm like, that's what I love. Yeah, that's great. I love that. So Mira, would you share why you chose to go by the neurodivergent pre-PA through social media and what that specifically means to you? Sure. So I felt like, although there's been like a lot more um, talk about like disabilities on social media, I feel like we don't really talk about like medical providers who have disabilities of any kind. Like it's a lot of times like I felt like there was a stark contrast between like the patients have disabilities and we are the providers and the fixers. But I've also been like really blessed to have some mentors who are providers who are disabled themselves. And I think that a lot of the times like, yes, like non-disabled people can understand people with disabilities but sometimes it really gives you a unique perspective when you have that like my friend has a therapist who's autistic and my friend is autistic herself and like just the level that you can really empathize with somebody although the autistic experience is different in every individual it's much different than if you're a neurotypical or what we call like a non-neurodivergent individual so like neurodivergent kind of it doesn't pathologize the fact that we have neurological differences it kind of says that like our brains are wired differently and that's okay and there's tons of um things on the neurodiversity spectrum from ADHD to autism spectrum disorder uh, to sensory processing disorder to dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, etc. And so neurotypicals are referred to like people who aren't neurodivergents. Um, and yeah, I identify as being neurodivergent. I also have anxiety and sensory processing disorder as well. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate that you share all that information with us because I think that you are absolutely correct. If there are providers out there that do share some of these things and feel comfortable to talk about them openly. I think that there are so many patients that would appreciate that from their providers and like you said, feel as though the providers can empathize and sympathize with them a little bit more. So I think that's absolutely wonderful and a great reason to try to do that and speak out and be an advocate. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And that's something I learned from my own providers. Like I have a provider who has advanced rheumatoid arthritis and it's really sad. He's a dermatologist of 55 years. He's 73 still in practice. Wow, that's amazing. And um, yeah, his hands hurt so much. So he's found like adaptable ways to like work and like it hurts to drive. And it just kind of like taught me though, like he knows like I have chronic pain from TMJ and he like got me to the right specialist and literally donated my Botox and my insurance wouldn't cover it because he knows what it's like to live in chronic pain. And like, I don't think that's something you would necessarily get from your non-disabled dermatologist. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really sad that he has to deal with that. But like you said, I think that he can use that to try to help others. So that's amazing for him for sure. So how has being neurodivergent impacted your educational experience and path to become a PA? Yeah, so I actually didn't really know what the term neurodivergent was like growing up. I was, and like some people, a lot of they're like a lot of the neurodiversity movement. It's like adults discovering that they are neurodivergent themselves. Sure, but like for me, I didn't really know it's like neurodivergent until I became like an adult. But I had special education services as a kid, and like that's a term that I don't really like. But that's what the term is for right now, unfortunately. Sure. Um, so I had speech therapy. I was in special ed. I also like grew up being labeled like the special ed kid, and like there's like a big stigma that comes with that. Hmm. Um, and I kind of like rejected that in high school. I like dropped my IEP. I didn't have any of that. So I thought like, oh, I was like normal or fixed. 
And then I struggled in college again. I kind of like rediscovered. And I was like, these things don't go away. You just learn to like mask them or you overcompensate. And you're studying three times as long and three times as hard to get half the grades. And like, that's not fair to you. And like, that's going to take a man, like a real toll on your mental health. And like, that's not good. So like, I got help and I got like some services and that really, really helped me. And I felt like that could help me. That could help other people too. And there's unfortunately a lot of ableism in medicine. Um, but there are some really great disabled providers who are like creators too, like the petite PAS. Um, she has post orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. And there's also the seated nurse, nurse Andrea. She is a full-time wheelchair using nurse. And she's awesome. Uh, but I felt like we didn't really talk about this. Like, I've been able to like help some pre-PAs who like are autistic and talk about like, do you mask in an injury or hide your symptoms or like, do you stim openly? And like, for me, like I try to like hide my symptoms in interviews because unfortunately they are ableist. And I feel like once you get into a school, you can kind of disclose that, but they can't kick you out for it. Although I did hear about a person with cochlear implants and they actually got kicked out of PA school when the PA director found out. Um, she like took some aside and she's like, you are not meant to get into this program. And the person got so depressed, they ended up failing their final and a bunch of other people did too. And they got kicked out. The others didn't. Aww. So they can't confirm for sure that it was due to a disability. She was even registered with disability services. But a PA who has a stutter um, and has language processing disorder actually was helping her to sue the school. Oh, man. That's so sad. Yeah. And she was so sad about it that she ended up going to NP school instead. So I don't blame her. Wow. Yeah, that's really awful. I'm really sorry to hear all that. And then you have shared that on your way to PA school, you have encountered several financial hurdles that have been different. Do you mind sharing, because this is a Absolutely. financial podcast, so to speak, for PAs, what, what those were and then how you were able to overcome them? Sure. So like I've been working since I was 14. Um, my mom stopped getting child support for me when I was like 13. So like talk about coming from like a lower income, not like you know, like food stamps, low income, but like a fairly lower income um, background, there was already that hurdle to get over. And then on top of that, so I know that there are things like um, for lower, some low income folks may qualify for things like CASPA fee waivers, which I'm sure people have heard about. But as I like literally advocated for to the CASPA director, if I was, if I even met like the upper end of the limit to get the CASPA fee waiver in New York, you would be so poor that you'd literally not even be in a shelter. Like that's how bad you would be. And so I'm trying to say, like, there's, like, a spectrum of lower-income students. And, like, CASPA's threshold is, like, nothing. And the only thing you get with that fee waiver is I think you get, like, the initial 179 waived. You still have to apply, like, for each school. They still charge you after that. And so, like, that's something I'm really passionate about. Like, hopefully one day as a PA, like, I can advocate for CASPA to change that. Or I would like to, like, do, like, small scholarships where I can, like, fund somebody's like applying to peace school and give them like three free schools to apply to or something because like I know how hard that was and like I worked four jobs so that I could afford to apply to 14 schools because it's a real investment as you talk about like time is money and so for me the best advice I ever got from a PA was what do you have to lose in applying so apply to 14 schools this year and yes it's gonna stink if you lose $800 but me losing $800 and applying to schools this year is gonna stink way less than like what if I didn't know I could have gotten into one of those programs and that's a year, you know, a year more of salary. I'm starting school a year earlier, working a year earlier, et cetera. Um, so that was just another thing that I encountered, like application cost. And then I also had to pay a lot of money like out of um, network because uh, mental health services aren't typically covered like by insurance or like they're really like bad turnover rates with therapists. And if you want like a good provider, and I really like the provider I have and like, thank God they're sliding scale. But that's still like money that I pay every single week. 
And then on top of that, when you take certain medications before the prior routes go through, it's like I learned about that from a patient side. So now when patients are complaining about prior routes, I can seriously empathize with that because I've been on the patient end of that. Um, and that's a lot. And you just deal with like a lot of that. And you spend a lot of time like talking to like pharmacies and stuff. And like that gets exhausting. And then I also had to spend a lot of money getting my neuropsych testing done to prove that like driving is not a good idea for me right now and that I have a visual processing um, issue. And then to just handle like certain um, aspects of sensory processing disorder, OT is not covered by my insurance because unless I've had a stroke and you're not a kid, they don't really care about your OT. Like they don't care about the fact that like I have so much anxiety about trying new foods and that I get nauseous around the smell of foods way more than the average person should. Um, They don't think that's a quality of life issue. They don't think that my temporal mandibular joint dysfunction, that I live in chronic pain and need Botox injections every three months is an issue. So like I've had to fight a lot of that and that's costed a lot of time and money. Yeah. Wow. That's certainly a lot that you've been going through over the years. And it is frustrating as the provider to have to help patients and go through all those hurdles. But I mean, you will be such a great provider even on top of that because you have experienced those situations and those hardships so you can empathize even more with your patients and understand their struggles and probably be even more frustrated alongside them and it is so frustrating that medications and therapies and all different types of help out there for people are sometimes so difficult to have access to for people so it's really tough that you've gone through all that but as you have touched on I think that it'll show that you have such greater insight and empathy for your future patients. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And I would also say it's like stigmatizing too, because on top of that, like there's certain medications that if you go to doctors, like they'll make assumptions about you or even PA schools, like there are certain drugs that, you know, like that you just look down upon for, but there's like a time and a place for these medications. And if you've had the neuropsych testing done, which that's not even a requirement to get like the ADHD diagnosis. There's more of like questionnaires and stuff. But I think that this also, like I'd like to like help inform my peers that like a lot of times, like, yes, people are diagnosing themselves with ADHD off TikTok, but it's also like a thing and that like we need to find like a better way to do that than to just dismiss people or tell them to go get $2,000 worth of testing because that's not equitable. And to also find a way so that, like, I ended up not pursuing autism uh, testing, although it was something I was interested in seeing if I had, because that's a label that can be weaponized against you, even in getting um, a PA license and getting a law um, degree, that they can say, like, you're unfit because of that. Even when you go to adopt kids, it can be weaponized against you in custody battles. So it's, like, Mm -hmm. very hard. And, like, that's all kinds of advocacy work that, like, I really would ask people to join in on. Yeah. Wow. That's certainly a lot to consider for sure. Do you think that there are certain common financial struggles that many pre-PAs face out there, whether or not they have a disability or are neurodivergent? Oh, yeah. What would some of those be? Sure. So, like, even if you're not disabled, so I feel like a lot of things is, like, let's talk one thing about, like, patient care experience. Like, some people, if they're, like, working a higher-paying job, like, maybe they're working, like, a really well-paying, like, I don't know, like secretary job, like let's pretend it's like a department store, I don't know. And that's really well paying people tell you, hey, patient care experience, like it doesn't really matter about the money. Like, oh my gosh, you got offered this amazing medical assistant opportunity, do it for the experience. A lot of lower income folks, first gen people, people who are supporting themselves through school. I know single mothers of four children with no child support who got out of uh, abusive relationships that applied to PA school. 
those are all hurdles. Like we need to be really um, cognizant of what kind of advice we're giving to pre-PAs and are we grounding it in, you know, equity or are we making it like you need the fancy figs? Like a lot of pre-PAs, I think that there's some like societal pressures to have like the nicest, newest scrubs, the nicest equipment when that's really not what you need. Um, And I think that a lot of the other things like things like patient care certifications, they can cost a lot of money. Whereas like getting trained on the job can sometimes be a more financially, wise decision but you also have to weigh that out with like if they train you on the job as a medical assistant how much you're going to be making versus like if you did like a certified emt course so i think that those are things to weigh and that just in general like another thing is like i love volunteering i've been volunteering since i was 14 but the amount of hours that some of these schools require is just so much that if you're somebody who has to work just to keep up with a living to keep a roof over your head i'm not sure how you're supposed to go to pa school with that and the fact that there is not a lot of scholarships for pa students out there I am doing scholarship research every single day. I spend at least an hour doing it. I have a Google document and like I'm very thorough, but you have to get really creative because there's not a lot of PA school funding. I mean, if you want to go into the armed forces, bless your heart. That like, that's like, I really just, I wouldn't even qualify actually um, due to my medical condition, but um, or you can go in prison system, but like people also don't even know, like before you take out the loans, like I would advise people like another hurdles, like how much are you actually going to be paying back and like talking about all of that and all of that good stuff, like to have that conversation before you even take it out the loans. And like, I'm doing my research thoroughly. Like you've advised me on this podcast and like the federally unsubsidized, the subsidized and like comparing things. And I think that a lot of pre-PAs, they feel pressure to go to schools with certain names, but the name of the school doesn't matter. It matters that it's accredited. And even if God forbid they lose their accreditation, as long as they were accredited the day that you sat in that seat for the very first day of class, you will be able to take pants. Um, so I think that there's a lot of stigma against going to certain PA programs and they don't have the fanciest name and it's a private school or it's a public school. And some people, they also come from states where their state doesn't even, like Connecticut, I think, doesn't even have like a state PA program. Whereas like, I'm really lucky. I live in New York. I pay a lot of money in taxes. But we also have like literally like, even just in my own city, we have three public PA programs, which is kind of crazy. Um, they are super competitive, but they're one of them is $38,000 for the whole program. The other one's like 40. The other one's like 44 very affordable compared to that but even then it's still not affordable so yeah sorry for the rumble sure no I love that I think that it's awesome that there are some of those schools out there that aren't six figures because I think that there are so many PA programs that are at least six figures and sometimes even more so USC is $173,000 apparently oh my goodness that's I looked it up yesterday to confirm because I thought that the person was lying to me oh my goodness yeah it's it's just sad truthfully the cost of education and student loans in general from undergrad and graduate school and medical school and all of that. So hopefully something gets done about that in the future, but we can't fix the world, can we, right now? And that's why I also advise like lower income folks not to discourage them from going to PA school, but to look into things like NP school because the things that my best friend, she was also planning to apply to PA school. We went to undergraduate together. She did some CNA work, whereas I did EMT, but pretty similar overall. She actually decided to get her accelerated bachelor's of science in nursing because her CNA job would fund half the tuition. And then she's going to go work as a nurse for two years and go to a nurse practitioner school. And nurses and PAs are both APPs. And sure, there are nuanced differences that NPs pick tracks. We can always go back and get multiple certifications and yada, yada, yada. But it's a much more affordable option. And there's a lot more nursing scholarships out there than PA scholarships. So to those folks, it's not to say that I'm discouraging you from that. But if I could redo this from day one, and I have no regrets about becoming a PA, I would have at least gotten my BSN or I would have done my ADN and then done maybe like a bachelor in bio if you really wanted that and then gone to PA school because then you can also have higher paying patient care experience. Like that's one other thing. Like 
since patient care experience can be low paying, if you can do a major that will lead you to something like respiratory, I've heard is very good for that. You can at least have a decent salary while you're saving up to go to PA school. Cool. Thanks for that perspective. And don't wait. Like so many people, they're like, I want to wait till I save up money and then go to PA school. But it's like, you're working as an MA and your salary is $32,000 a year. Like, let's compare that. It's better even with the loans that you take it out now, you go to PA school now versus you waiting. Like that's not gonna, that's not the wisest decision. Unless you have other things like, you know, that you want to wait to go to PA school for, like maybe you want to start a family or something. I don't know. Yeah, totally. I think that you brought up a couple of great points. I think that becoming an RN first can open the door to so many things if people feel like they want to start with nursing. I've had... And you can still go to PA. There are plenty of RNs who choose PA school. Exactly. I was going to say one of my preceptors for in the ER was a PA that was an RN first. So you can become an NP, you can become a PA after becoming an RN, you can be a CRNA. There's so many different options out there. That's another thing too. If you really want to do, like I have nothing against the PA profession. I love it. But there are certain things that if I knew I absolutely wanted to do that thing, I would have gone NP route. Sure, sure. But what I was going to touch on with the scholarship was that I would encourage both you, Mira, as well as the listeners to consider applying to the scholarship that I'm a part of with a lot of- PA Blueprint. Yes, with exactly- Yep, with Shane. I started my application. Awesome. I'm so <laughs> glad to hear that. With Shane and Jordan, they started this scholarship that several of us PApreneurs are a part of. Thank you so much for collaborating with them. And it's amazing. I just hope that somebody, whoever gets it, benefits from it. And I'm so grateful to whoever gets it. And I just hope the best for them. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's going to be a really exciting and fun opportunity. And it's with Karen Kilcano, who I've had on the show, and then My PA Box, who I've had on the show. Love My yeah, PA Box. Awesome. And that can save you money when applying to PA school. Um, I know it's like $50, but it's like the cost of applying to one PA school. So if you accidentally apply to three that you don't qualify for, I think like tools like that, 100%. Yeah, sure. And then Kristen over at Strive Coaching, she's great as well. And then Andrew with PA for Finance, I'm hoping to get him on the show as well soon. So there are several of us. And so the deadline for the applications is June 1st. So this episode is going to be airing May 13th. So make sure that you get in your application for the scholarship soon. And hopefully one of you guys will get it soon and be able to help you out a little bit. It's not a very large scholarship by any means. But like you said, if you can get several of Every these smaller little bit ones. Helps. Yeah, totally can really make an impact. Also, another thing that I recommend to people is look at non-PA specific ones. Like if you're from like a certain heritage, so if you're like Latina, there's scholarships for just general graduate Latina students. Because I'm in the child of an alcoholic, I qualified for some of those scholarships. Because I have a documented disability, there are some scholarships for disabled grad students. So you just have to like look through, comb through, email, make sure you meet all the qualifications before you like hyper-focus like me on applying and find out that you didn't qualify. Awesome. Thank you for that. Just like when applying to schools. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's wonderful advice for sure. And then, Mira, when did you learn about financial independence and then which concepts of financial independence seem most appealing to you? I actually learned about it through your podcast. Oh, awesome. Not to be corny, <laughs> but shout out to like my early morning subway rides where I'm just like <laughs> listening to a podcast to like stimulate my brain enough to like wake up. Um, but I feel like one of the biggest things that drew me to financial independence is that like one of my biggest dreams is to like really have family time, but also career. And I feel like we're... I don't want to stereotype like certain parts of the country, like in New York, I think it's like a very career dominated thing. Like most people, like they don't have kids until like their late thirties, early forties, even fifties here is pretty common. Like I know somebody had kids at 56 and that's like not unheard of. Here. Wow. And now they're a single parent and have twins in their 70s. Oh my goodness. Raising teenagers in your 70s. That's intense. Yeah, that sounds um, challenging. 
but I think the financial independence aspects is like doing what I like. Like I know that my my mind may always change about what specialties I like, but the specialties that I'm most drawn to are like the lower paying, like not really fabulous looking ones. Like they're not super flashy. I love geriatrics, and I also really love hospice. I was supposed to do a perinatal or infant hospice uh, internship right before the pandemic started. Um, so like I really love end of life care and like. I also love like home health and like those aren't like the, the super flashy like plastic surgery paying specialties. Uh, but having the financial independence, like be able to do that without worrying is really nice. And to like be able to provide for like hopefully children and like just have the opportunity to adopt children be amazing. Like also have a child of my own. <laughs> super cool. Those, yeah, those sound like wonderful reasons to pursue financial independence and bless you for being drawn towards those types of specialties because I think that they can be more difficult to work in and that's wonderful if you have the heart for them and the other thing is like I felt like life was short like I've lost a lot of like people like early on in my life so I felt like quality of life is something that it teaches you and like working in hospice and palliative care just like reminds you the importance of financial independence and getting your affairs in order like I'm like 22 but like honestly like I would like to have like you know like a will and like I think that all those things shouldn't really be stigmatized necessarily because you never know what will happen to you but like it's also how the independence to like enjoy and thoroughly enjoy each day like I'll go to Broadway shows on a random night or I'll go out like you know partying on a random Tuesday night like call me irresponsible but what if I don't get that chance tomorrow so like it's a delicate balance between those two and like the PA profession kind of supports that for me yes yes exactly both myself and my husband lost our fathers at such young ages that it was really difficult that they were so young and not even to the traditional retirement age yet. So I think that that's such a huge reason to try to enjoy life along the way to financial independence. So not try to delay gratification so much that you feel like you're living life in deprivation, but that you are enjoying and living life to the fullest and pursuing hobbies along the way too. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And, like, I have some expensive hobbies. Like, I really love to travel, but, like, because I was able to work so much and do that. But, like, I also like to learn more about investing, but that's, like, really cool. Yeah, it just all takes time to keep listening to podcasts, read blogs, read books. There's so much information out there for sure. Thank you. And then as we're wrapping up the episode, do you have any other pieces of advice for our listeners, especially the pre-PA listeners or the neurodivergent listeners that are out there? Oh my goodness, yes. Okay, so just a couple things like to the folks applying to PA school that are neurodivergent or of other disabilities, like please like don't be afraid to use your accommodations. So don't be me. I like wasn't gonna use my accommodations for the GRE and I have like a bunch of accommodations that I have a history of using, things like extended time or like um I'm allowed to have, like access to like recorded lectures, like even pre COVID, um, because I like zone out in class. I'm not gonna catch all the information that I zoned out to. Um, so don't be afraid to like use your accommodations and get started on that process early. I actually had to like pay to like retake my GRE basically or like reschedule it because they like took such a long time to get my accommodations because unfortunately a lot of people have taken advantage of the system over the years and they kind of get prescriptions for certain medications that they think will enhance their performance and like certain things like when you're somebody who genuinely uses some of those accommodations like time and a half, you're scrutinized and like I understand that I play fair but like it's kind of like the people who cheat the system that ruin it for the people who genuinely need it. Um, and also I can be really like overwhelming applying to like PA school because I really struggle with like executive functioning, which is things like 
short-term memory. So like I externalize that. I use my Google Calendar. And it's like honing those skills as a pre-PA. You want that set up. You want your toolbox form just for anybody in general before you get to PA school. So like if you're certain things you need to do to do that, go for it. Like my OT helped me find like a really good system and like that I'm like a very visual person. I use a Google Calendar and I externalize things. And like it might be silly, but like I take notes before every meeting because like I forget is this person I'm meeting with and I have like a million meetings a day <laughs> so things like that and not being afraid to you need to make sure you use your accommodations if you have them as consistently as possible because when you go to sit for pants like after PA school unless you've used your accommodations all throughout PA school there's a high chance that they will deny you for accommodation so I I don't love that policy but just even if you know you don't use them use them anyway sure. use them anyway always use them And also, if you think that you might qualify for them, but you don't have them yet, like you think maybe I have dyslexia or something, go get screened. A lot of um, campus centers, they, I'm not saying it's the best mental health center, but it's better than nothing. They'll have like a mental health service or they also have an office of like for students with disabilities type thing. And they'll do like a basic intake and get you set up with some accommodations, which can really help. So don't be afraid to do that. And to the providers as well, um, be accessible to your patients who have disabilities and think about it. Please don't like run and tell me 10 minutes of information and don't allow me to write it down because I have a short-term memory problem and I'm not going to remember all those instructions you just told me. So I either need a little bit of time to like write down things or like I get very overwhelmed. Like I only go to the first appointment of the day or I don't go because my brain's in waiting mode. If I have a 2 p.m. doctor's appointment, that's all I can think about until 2 p.m. So just be flexible. And those are little accommodations that make a huge difference. Like if I have to go get blood work, I'm only doing it at 8 in the morning or else I'm not doing it at all. Nice. Those were great points. I really think that they'll be very helpful for many people out there. So thank you. Thank you. And also, sorry to interrupt, but one other thing is that during PA school, also know that there are certain accommodations that you can't get. So, like, you can't get, like, extra time on, like, physical exams because, like, you know, you can't have extra time to do CPR. But on, like, didactic exams and, like, lab skills, I guess, like, um, those you can get more time on. Okay. That's good to know for sure. I'm really looking forward to seeing how your PA school journey will and how you're able to continue to advocate throughout both didactic year as well as rotations. And then as you become a PA, I'm really looking forward to seeing that for your future. Thank you. I'm looking forward to like learning more about financial independence. Yeah, totally. And Mira, where can the listeners find you if they'd like to connect or have questions or want to learn more from you? Sure. So I'd love if you put this in the show notes too, because I know some people um, would also help to like do that, especially if anybody has like auditory processing issues or just doesn't catch it. But um, my LinkedIn is my first and last name. So M-I-R-A, last name B-H-A-T-T-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A. And then my Instagram account is at the period neuro, N-E-U-R-O, D-I-V-E-R-G-E-N-T, period pre-P-A. And then my TikTok is the same, but I'm not super active on TikTok, to be honest. But you can follow me all. And I can also include my email. I'm happy. I've actually, like, been really blessed to, like, pre-PAs have, like, reached out to me. And, like, I've helped them to, like, navigate the accommodations process, which, like, I'm happy to do. Because, like, if I struggle and go through it, I hope somebody else can benefit. Very cool. I'll be sure to include all those in the show notes. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and being so open and honest and sharing your perspective with both myself and the listeners today. I really appreciate it, Mira. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. 
please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on. But more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.